The AWS for Software Companies podcast, episode 27, Building and Sustaining a Successful Software Company, featuring Mohit Aaron of Cohesity, Armand Dadgar of HashiCorp, Ankit Sobti of Postman, Eli Khan of Sentinel One, and Carol Potts of AWS. everyone, and welcome back to the AWS for Software Companies podcast, where we speak to software leaders around the world about their journeys to the cloud, overcoming obstacles, and the role that Amazon Web Services play in their success. Today, we feature a panel discussion from the AWS for Software Companies Executive Forum at reInvent, featuring software leaders, founders, and co-founders from Cohesity, HashiCorp, Postman, and Sentinel One, sharing how they grew their software company, software trends they are seeing in the market, and growth plans for 2024. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is great to see you. In this session, we're going to talk about the software trends that we think that most companies are interested in as far as building your software products and the trends that you're seeing. And we're going to share uh, in this conversation, the, the trends that we're seeing, and I'm sure that you're going to see that uh, in your companies as well. And you know that fast delivery and great products are not the only thing that you need for your customers as you build great software companies and great software products. Then everything else comes along at a very fast pace, whether you know the internet, the cloud, Gen AI, lots of things change that the great features and products that you've built suddenly really just become table stakes. So for our last session, I'm pleased and I'm very, very excited about this. I'm thrilled to be moderating this because as you saw, the topic is building and sustaining successful software companies. So we have founders of, of software companies who interestingly have each founded their companies in around 2012 and 2013. So they've been through founding companies and really going through a lot of things over time that are now they're leading and sustaining software companies. So we thought that that would be super interesting for all of you. Um, their journey, uh, what they see, what they've seen, what they see going forward. But that's what we're gonna talk about is really um, those trends and experiences. We will hope that you'll all learn from them the experiences of building and sustaining software companies. So I have with me today, we have Ankit Sobti, Armand Daggar, Eli Khan, and Mohit Aran. And so it would be best if I let them each introduce themselves to you. So Mohit, we'll start with you. Yep. Hello, everyone. I'm Mohit Aran. I'm uh, the founder and uh, CTO at Cohesity. So a little bit about the company. Cohesity is an AI-powered data security and data management company, which is a fancy way of saying that we start by just backing up enterprise data, and then we go on to do more. We protect our customers from ransomware attacks. We offer security. We also offer data insights through generative AI. And sometimes I like to draw an analogy to a smartphone, right? Just like a smartphone starts off by being a great phone, but then goes on to do more stuff, like it can be your music player, it can be your camera, it can be your GPS. 
Similarly, it could easily starts off by being just providing backups and then it does more, uh, it does data security and data management. And just like Carol said, building a product is not enough. There's more to it than that. So we're also very blessed to have a strategic partnership with AWS. They even invested in us three years back uh, and they've uh, really helped us uh, get to where we are. So that's who we are. Great, thank you. Armand? Sure, uh, I'm Armand Dodgar. I'm one of the co-founders and CTO of HashiCorp. And you know, we focus on cloud infrastructure automation. So you know, tools like Terraform, tools like Vault, tools like Console, uh, that I think many of the folks in the room probably use to, to build their applications on top of AWS. Uh, our history with Amazon goes way back. Uh, in fact, I was joking with Carol backstage, my history goes even further back. Uh, I actually worked at Amazon you know, back in 2008 at, in AWS when it was 250 people. Uh, and I got to meet Andy Jassy as part of like my onboarding. You know, the back, this is back when all of AWS was maybe like you know 200 people. And so, for, from a very early stage, it was very much an Amazon user and customer. And then, you know, naturally, as we founded the company, uh, ended up building on top of AWS. And it's been a very deep partnership because a lot of what we do is cloud infrastructure automation, cloud infrastructure security, and and obviously Amazon is a uh, is a very key partner for us uh, as part of that journey. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Ankit Sopti. I'm one of the co-founders and the CTO at a company called Postman. So Postman is an API development platform that is used by more than 25 million developers and more than half a million, roughly, organizations around the world. It started as a side project in 2012, and we started out formally as a company in late 2014. I spent 10 years building Postman, and I think in my most recent role, I spent a lot of time with you know, executives and uh, companies and learn more about you know, what's happening in the ecosystem, what's happening with APIs. Uh, and we have been with AWS since uh, 2015. Great, thank you. Eli. Hey everyone, my name is Eli Khan. I'm VP of Product for Cloud Security in AIML at Sentinel One. Uh, Sentinel One's about 10 years old. Uh, we are uh, AWS native and cloud native from the start. And uh, what we do is AI powered, you'll probably hear that term a lot this week, AI powered extended detection and response. Um, so we started out using AI to disrupt the traditional antivirus industry. Uh, and we've extended that platform now to really cover all of your attack services in your entire enterprise. Uh, so we have detection response capabilities for cloud security, identity security, endpoint security. And we bring that all together into a data lake to help you with your investigations and forensics. Um, my journey at AWS uh, actually started well before Sentinel-1, my personal journey, and uh, I was actually at AWS prior to Sentinel-1. Uh, I built out one of the AWS security services there called AWS Security Hub, and I landed at AWS via a startup that I uh, co-founded called Squirrel that became Amazon Detective after the acquisition. Great, thank you. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, it is really unique to be a founder, and so I want to we're gonna mix it up throughout the day. We'll hear from different uh, people and different questions. But I'd like each one of you to answer this question. You're all founders of software companies, so it'd be really great if you share with the audience how you saw an opening in the market to found the company and your founding journey. Because you have to see something and believe in it and drive it, and you're all very, have been very successful and are very successful, so share with us what that opening was that you saw in the market. We'll start here. All right. So the company was founded in 2013. Um, the genesis of the idea came from the observation that everyone needs 
to back up the data, right? All major enterprise companies uh, need to back up the data. And yet, they do nothing with that data and the product that's backing it up. It's basically used uh, just as an insurance policy and a very expensive insurance policy, right? So that was the genesis of the idea. And then, of course, there were also problems with the specific legacy backup products they were using. I mean, it was hard to recover. It was not scale out. It was so many problems just with the backup product itself. But the core, again, was the fact that you buy this expensive piece of technology and you never use it. You only use it if you need to retrieve data for, you know, maybe compliance or if it's lost or something. Why don't we make it a little bit more capable? So why don't we build it into a bigger platform that's not just a backup, right? Just like a smartphone is not just a phone. Uh, we wanted to build something that's not just a backup. And hence was born the idea of uh, building uh, a platform that uh, not only does backups, but it's really uh, takes care of data management, data security, and it's AI-powered. So that was the founding journey 10 years back, and here we are. Yeah, that's great. Good. Yeah, I mean, the, the journey with HashiCorp, you know, it very much was sort of a, a classic kind of scratching your own itch. You know, I came out of a, a, a different startup, very much a different space. It was a mobile advertising uh, startup built on AWS. And, you know, this is circa 2010. The challenge we found in trying to build a sort of at-scale cloud-based ad network at the time was there wasn't good infrastructure tooling, right? And so when we think about the challenges of infrastructure management at an ad company, it's low margin, you have very high scale, but you have high peak to trough variance, right? You might go from midnight, you have, you know, whatever, one extra traffic to noon, you have 100 extra traffic. And when you have thin margins as an ad network, right, like you don't want to just have 100x of your infrastructure sitting around. So we were building all of this tooling in-house in terms of being able to do dynamic infrastructure provisioning, being able to do automatic scale-up, scale-down, being able to do service discovery, being able to do dynamic app deployment, and have sort of a follow-the-sun model because you have users in Japan who are in obviously in a different time zone than you know, Europe, US, whatever. And so the gap we felt was like, why are we building infrastructure management tooling? We're an ad network, right? We should just go buy this from someone else who, who focuses on cloud infrastructure. But then when we spend time with a bunch of our peers, you know, hey, what are the folks at Stripe doing and Slack and GitHub and everybody else? Like, how are you managing your cloud estates? What we heard from everybody was they're building their own infrastructure management tools. So we just saw this over and over again where everyone has these large engineering teams building cloud management software. And we're like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You should just focus on being GitHub or Slack or Stripe and buy the tools that, that help you manage your cloud estate. That's ultimately what led to us founding HashiCorp was sort of, hey, let's go scratch that itch. Uh, we're like, how hard could the infrastructure tooling be? We'll spend a few years and then we'll go back to the problem we were working on. Uh, you know, 10 years later, we're still working on infrastructure. So it turns out there's some, uh, there's some interesting challenges there. And would you say that the vision has evolved it over certainly has, time? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think what we've discovered is obviously new problems emerge, right? It started out, if you think about cloud circa 2010, it was very much low level IaaS, right? It was VM as a service. So I think as the portfolio of clouds gotten much more complex, you also have much more services, you have different models of containers and serverless and other things. The abstractions have changed, the actual topologies are much more complex. So I think the problem space has evolved quite a bit from 2010, and you know, that's what keeps it interesting. Yeah, that's great, thank you. All right, uh, actually a very similar scratch your own edge uh, problem, but definitely coming from a developer lens rather than infrastructural lens. Uh, so my co-founder and I uh, started our careers together at Yahoo in 2009. 
And we were working on this, you know, CTO level objective of making sure that all the feeds that Yahoo was ingesting moved through a common platform where you could run some basic workflows and stuff on top of it. And uh, we were basically hired to build a UI on top of an API that was already built out because nobody within the company wanted to use the API directly. They wanted an administration tool. They wanted something to just, you know, actually just get started. So as we were building out the UI, we realized that, you know, the tools that we were using were either non-existent or just like super clunky. And it took a lot of, you know, painful iterations for us to get the UI, a fairly straightforward UI out there. And I think, I mean, we were starting our careers at that point, but we sort of also realized that, you know, this thing that, you know, has this CTO level visibility that we keep hearing about uh, is being done through something that is seems very important, but doesn't have the right tools to support it. And this was a trend that we saw across, you know, other places that we worked at. So Postman came out as a scratch your own edge kind of a project again to solve our own problems around how we built and tested APIs. We shared it with others around us, saw their productivity improve. Then we put, you know, we were a little encouraged, so we put it out there for the world to see. And, you know, first six months, we had 50,000 users. First two years of, again, a side project, we had half a million users. And I think through that journey, I think we also realized that APIs were, as much they were a technology problem, they were also a collaboration and a very human problem. And I think that's the takeaway that we took and when we decided that, you know what, I think it's a problem that needs solving. And we have a good head start there but something that we want to continue investing in and explore this human collaborative side of APIs. So same question, follow-up question about the evolving vision. It sounds like your vision has evolved as well. Anything else that you can say about that? 100%. I think we got a front row seat looking at the evolution of the API ecosystem and how APIs just became center stage in the world. You know, with companies looking at technical strategy, but also like business goals and business strategy. I Last week, I was talking to this uh, executive at a Fortune 500 company and uh, the one thing that he mentioned was, you know, we are in an industry in which actually nobody really profits, makes profit. And the primary reason for that is because we are all building these proprietary technologies and they all, and half the energy that we spend in development actually goes in just translating across all these proprietary technologies. And a big change that we are looking to drive is just making standardized APIs in the ecosystem and probably that leads us all to profitability. And that's a big objective for everybody. Even if you look at a country, I was in India a month ago, and, you know, the whole country is now facing its premise on, like, everything becomes a decentralized governance ecosystem powered by actual APIs. So I think, you know, for us to look at that evolution, to look at the fact that APIs are as important they are to technical strategy, but also to business strategy has been a very important evolution. And we kind of sort of looked at, you know, evolving our own platform and uh, towards solving different aspects of the API lifecycle. And that's where we have focused our energies on. Eli. Okay, uh, so let's see here. So the the journey for, for my startup, Squirrel, really started in the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, so myself, my co-founders all came from the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, my co-founders came from the NSA, and uh, they're really tasked with figuring out how to make sense of the petabytes of information that were being collected in the post-9-11 world by the NSA. And um, ultimately, what they landed on was the development of knowledge graphs uh, and extracting entities and relationships from unstructured to semi-structured data, uh, and then using that, those entities and relationships to find interesting patterns in the data that could be used for various types of intelligence activities. And uh, NSA took the relatively unusual step to open source that, that graph database that 
uh, my co-founders had built uh, called Accumulo. And uh, we decided to go out and try to take some of these same types of massively scalable graph techniques and apply them to the security world. Uh, but, you know, like most startups, it really wasn't that clean as, <laughs> as what I'm saying. You know, there was some major pivots there. We started out initially as a graph database company, you know, competing with the likes of Neo4j and Datastacks. And ultimately, we decided that was not going to be a winning proposition. And so we worked closely with some of our early adopters and customers, and uh, they were thankfully using us for cybersecurity use cases. And we ended up building a full stack platform that we called a threat hunting platform. That was one of the first applications of security graphs to help identify really unknown threats uh, hiding in your data. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, uh, we took that idea of threat hunting and uh, we we're the first company to really espouse what threat hunting is, how to do it, how to use security graphs to power it, which ended up getting a lot of uh, attention and traction, ultimately landed us at AWS. And so say a little bit more about that, about how AWS has supported you along the way, not to sound like it's a self-serving question, <laughs> but it sounded like you were starting to go there. Yeah, yeah. So let's see here. Um, you know, the acquisition by AWS was obviously a fantastic landing spot. The, the, the scary secret about, uh, about Squirrel is that that graph database was backed by Hadoop. <laughs> we got out of the Hadoop business at just the right time and uh, landed at AWS and rebuilt it as a you know, native S3-backed multi-tenant microservice uh, architecture. Um, and uh, you know, the, the transition from startup into you know, a, a giant company like AWS actually was, was pretty easy. You know, AWS does an amazing job of instilling this entrepreneurial culture despite being you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, so it felt quite natural as we landed there. That's great, good, thank you. So uh, Postman, HashiCorp, Sentinel One, Cohesity, all founded, as I mentioned earlier, between 2012 and 2013. And so about 10 plus years old. So let's talk really about sustaining software companies. Everyone knows the uh, economic environment has been challenging for many companies. And so I'm curious what you're seeing in the market. If we could just go down quickly again, what you're seeing in the market, how you're, customer, how you're reacting to that with your customers. Eli, do you mind, we'll start with you? Sure, sure. Yeah, so let's see here, the beginning of 2023, uh, I think people were really nervous. We saw folks really taking their time and delaying large procurements. But fortunately, what we've seen now in the second half of the year is that those delays have led to pent-up demand. Um, so the second half of the year, frankly, has been much busier for us than, than the first half of the year. But you know, a big part of that also is not just the fact that folks delayed some of their larger purchases, but what we saw you know, from a security perspective is that attackers weren't delaying. In fact, like the velocity and the, the number of ransomware attacks only increased um, you know, through the beginning of the year into the, the end of the year. And so that's, that's been driving a lot of the demand as well, um, you know, especially as we move towards a more distributed workplace. You know, folks have the need to not only protect their core infrastructure, but also their distributed infrastructure, uh, which has you know, played well into our value proposition. 
Yeah, that's great. Thank you. We're always asking and always looking to find out from our customers, you, what you're seeing with your customers. So thank you for sharing that. Yes, Ankit. Yeah, uh, so I think it's important to look maybe a little bit at like our business model and I think there are two aspects to it. So we have a bottoms up, self-serve, you know, product-led growth, bring your own credit card and buy the license. And then there's a sales-serve, top-down motion. And I think on the bottoms up, self-serve side, I think we saw a little bit of churn in terms of, you know, companies shutting down entirely, especially the smaller companies or teams, you know, uh, curtailing. And I think very much what we saw in terms of sales cycles, I think, you know, longer sales cycles is took, had a lot more scrutiny, took a lot longer to close. And I think it's given us an opportunity to refine our message and who we give that message to. And I think one of the key drivers that we changed with our go-to-market teams was, you know, making sure that we are selling on value of what Postman actually delivers rather than some, you know, license concentration or IT play that doesn't really work. And I think, you know, if I see a deal that's going through, which doesn't have the right value or the champion in place, I would mark that as a yellow flag that, you know, I, it's something I would want to watch out for uh, over time. So I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, if you're able to establish the right value, and I think that two pillars that we see at least, you know, where we align, developer productivity, the teams are either stagnant in terms of the number of people or are a little smaller now that we work with, which means that there's a lot more focus on efficiency and getting your developers to be more productive with their work. And the second aspect I think that comes in the API ecosystem is change management and, you know, API change management is really hard. And again, you know, something that people have to work through. So I think I would just echo what Eli said here that, you know, it just, it's, you're able to get the larger conversations through as long as you are doing value-based conversations. Yeah, I think that's a great point about value. What we saw probably a couple of years ago was so much growth so fast. And that was the right thing to do at that time. And then when the, the economy changed, what we saw with our customers and you with your customers is there was just a lot more deep thought and thinking about are we spending, are we buying the right products, spending our money in the right ways? And I think it's going to be that way. It's probably going to stay and it's probably a good thing because uh, it, we, everybody needs to show value, uh, as you mentioned. So it holds us all much more accountable. So good, Armin. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll echo a lot of what you what you are the sentiment that's already kind of been shared. I think you know one of the things we've seen is a pivot in terms of I'll call it the, almost the cloud philosophy of a lot of our customers. What I mean by that is, if I go back a year, two years, it felt like it was sort of like cloud at all cost, right? Meaning, do a lift and shift, do an app migration, do a whatever. It was sort of like people were there wasn't a sort of I'll call it a necessarily almost a thoughtful view of hey, which app goes to cloud? Why is it going to cloud? What's the business value of it? It was just like move everything to cloud for the sake of it. I think that's kind of come to a pause. <laughs> and I think we've seen customers be a little bit more like, hey, this legacy app that I haven't updated in 10 years, do I need to move it to cloud? Maybe not. What's the ROI? Versus my net new greenfield app that I'm going to iterate, I'm going to build on cloud native services. Okay, that thing has higher value in cloud. So I think what we saw shift going into this year is sort of that CIO priority went from like cloud at all costs to sort of a bit more of, I'll call it a, a, a rational approach to cloud, which is, hey, you know, net new applications or greenfield or modernized things that make sense, we're leveraging cloud primitives, put that in cloud. And then with the rest of our estate where we've been cloud, cloud, cloud for the last three years, do we need to go in and rationalize that, cost optimize it? You know, maybe we had 50 VMs where there should be 25, whatever, that kind of a behavior. So I think we saw that buyer behavior change just in terms of priority. So I think for us, it's been sort of a pivot in terms of, okay, how do you better align to what the customer's priorities are, right? Great. If a year ago, your priority was cloud migration, here's how I'm going to help you with that. 
if this or your cloud priority is, hey, how do I do rationalization of part of my estate or better automation or do you know, whatever it is, how do we sort of fit into that? So I think that's been sort of the, uh, a little bit of the reset we've seen customers go through in terms of their IT priority, and then that's translated for us in terms of how do you change the way you're positioning your value to fit into the customer's priorities. And have you seen a change in the different type of customer? Is it the enterprise customers acting different than the smaller customers that you work with? Or is what you mm. just described kind of across the board? Uh, it's probably more for the enterprise customers. I mean, the, the smaller customers generally don't even have private data centers. They're all in in cloud anyway. So they don't have that same calculus of like, should I move this legacy app? Like they don't have a legacy app. They're like a yeah. two-year-old company. Um, so I think it's the enterprise companies who have a bit of that larger estate mix of multi-cloud and private data center and have that sort of a, and by virtue of it being a 10-year, 20, 30, 40-year estate, they have a lot more cruft, if you right. want to kind of call it that, that they have to figure out, okay, does it make sense to rationalize, modernize, refactor? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think they just have more of the complexity. Yeah. Mohit, did you have some words on that too? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll build on what has already been said. I'll talk about three trends that we've kind of been observing, especially from the higher end of the enterprise. Number one is, uh, you know, everyone we talk to is going through digital transformation. They're uh, embracing the hybrid cloud. They don't want to, uh, like, you know, Armand said, they don't want to lift and shift necessarily all their apps to the cloud. But at the same time, they also do not want to buy point products. Something different for the cloud, something different on-prem. They really want, uh, at least in data management, uh, one product that can manage it all for them. So they may be, uh, you know, running some, um, some application on-prem, um, then back it up move that data to the cloud, uh, do that test and development in the cloud. Um, you know, once it's ready, move some of that back on-prem. So they really want uh, one product that can handle all that. Uh, the second trend is, uh, you know, protection from ransomware attacks, right? That's kind of been on the rise uh, the last, especially two years. They say there's a ransomware attack happening every 20 seconds or so. Um, so protection from that is paramount. Um, so that's the second thing we see. And, and lastly, they want to get more value from the data. And especially with the, you know, generative AI and AI-powered world, um, you know, that's become really interesting for them. So those are the three big things we, we see and where Prohesity kind of plays in. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, several of you mentioned this, and we know that customers, your customers, really want to deeply understand that the software they buy has a strong value proposition and is positively impacting their business and they're also very focused on productivity and you've all been working to showcase these features in your products and and also stay nimble at the same time it's very hard to do both i'd like to hear from a couple of you uh, we'll hear from ankit arman and eli on what strategies you've been pursuing to deliver that but also stay nimble at the same time yeah, uh, you know, one, one part of it I spoke about is making sure that we are talking about value, but talking about value means knowing who you are talking to, and that sometimes means that, you know, we probably de-incentivize very large hero deals and look at like smaller value propositions where you're able to land in organizations at the right time. And that creates the right message, the right framing, and also gives an opportunity to, you know, just be in the company, and something that gives us a base to build up on top of. Even in existing accounts, we want to make sure that we have the ability to go and have conversations more towards value and expand as much as we need to. 
in terms of our own teams i think you know i, I mean we mentioned productivity but i think that's something we are looking at a lot productivity of our developers productivity of sales teams productivity of customer success and so on and that's an interesting one because you know with sales i think there's like enough playbooks in place to how do you measure productivity but with something like developers i think you just need to be a little cautious of like what direction you take because it's very easy to tread down paths that you know set certain wrong cultural incentives and uh, precedents there yeah i mean i think for us it's um, you know what's the nature of our tooling is fundamentally automation tooling so i think what's interesting about automation tooling is that you know you fundamentally are always hitting i'll call it the three different value vectors right it's sort of by virtue of it being automation you're focusing on productivity and sort of improving you know pace of being able to do delivery generally we're replacing manual workflows but you're also there's clearly a cost angle to that right by virtue of hey if you had 10 people manually pointing and clicking and filing tickets and you can replace that with automation there's there's a cost story to be told and then there's an obvious security story to that as well right when you think about you know how do i move away from i had 10 super privileged operators pointing and clicking with super admin access to an automated solution So I think the way you can talk about an automation solution can always play off of those different vectors. I think that tying it back to sort of staying nimble when you have a buyer environment that changes to be a little bit more cost conscious rather than maybe focusing on some of the other vectors that might have been more automation, you know, sort of productivity focused or maybe being more risk focused, we're going to focus more features on cost, right? So this year for example, we released a feature around sort of ephemeral environment automation. So great you have a dev test environment that comes up you want to auto destroy it in 7 days or 30 days or when a developer stops using it that becomes sort of a where you're now taking the same core of the automation capability but you're sort of playing off of more of a cost vector which in this type of a macro environment fits better into sort of what the the customer is looking to hear so that's kind of how we balance thinking about sort of the nimbleness you know it's thinking about to your point who's your buyer what's their persona what's their concern okay if they're thinking about cost optimization as their top priority how do you fit into their priorities and then shifting your roadmaps to to be a tighter fit into sort of what the customer is asking for. You know, I so I think those, you know, fundamentally end up being the dimensions of of an any automation play, but you can still pick from a roadmap capability which of those dimensions you focus on. Yeah, has to be a conscious strategy but yet flexible so that you can flex when you see that change as well. So good, Eli. Yeah. So I'll I'll take uh two angles to this. You know, first in saying in terms of staying nimble um you know a big piece of our strategy was looking at ways we can save money um and make sure that our investments that we are making have a high ROI so you know a lot of this stuff was basic blocking and tackling like taking deep scrutiny at our travel budgets um putting a higher focus on lower cost hiring locations um but the much more fun way that we've stayed nimble is actually uh something that we've been doing and actually Uh, something I brought over fro- to Sentinel One from AWS is actually a number of AWS mechanisms, and trying to transplant that DNA into Sentinel One. So, you know, we've actually adopted full throttle PRFQs at Sentinel One now, and is a primary way in which we do innovation. We've also adopted the concept of two pizza teams uh, to to invest in those PRFQs around innovation. In fact, the uh, our generative AI capability. uh called purple started out as a PRFQ and two pizza team uh and now has become you know one of the, our our top or most important investments that we're making moving forward. We hear that a lot. People are at AWS or Amazon and leave to another company and take some of the mechanisms with them so that's great to hear and glad that it's working for you. So that's good. 
Um, as we're coming out of this lean environment, that's what we'll call this economic time that we've been going through, this lean environment and rebounding. I'd like to be positive that we truly are rebounding, which we do see those signs. I'd like to hear from a couple of you, where are you pushing for growth? So we're starting to come out, rebound, we're starting to see that growth. Where are you pushing harder for that growth? And let's go uh, Ankit, Mohit, and Arman. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I think like we have a huge user base and customer base, and I just want to make sure that we're able to expand in our existing uh, systems itself. And I think, you know, separately, we've been able to use this time to focus on what's important, but also make sure that the teams that focus on everything that is being built and value being communicated are doing the job. But simultaneously, we are able to invest in new spaces where we are able to experiment and certain problem areas that we want to solve for within the API lifecycle. Some of it actually extends towards application development, and we made great strides into that as well. Uh, AI has been like a very, very interesting area to explore for us in terms of what capabilities it can augment and what capabilities can, can fundamentally change. Um, finally, I think, you know, uh, for us, community has always been important. It's something that we are doubling down on. Uh, and we are also having, uh, you know, a more uh, ecosystem and partnership-based play that we are investing in terms of how we grow within, you know, the myriad of developer and enterprise-based developer-centric technologies that ex exist out there. Good. Thank you. Mohit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's security for us. So imagine uh, a large enterprise and, you know, uh, as we are coming out of this lean environment, there's a lot of scrutiny, especially on the bigger deals. So normally, you know, um, the CIO would say, hey, I know we are living in pain, but tolerate it for a little while. Uh, but when you raise the issue of security, I mean, that's literally a boardroom level discussion, right? Um, that's where nobody wants to, you know, put their neck out. So that's what makes them, you know, uh, act a little bit faster. So we're really pushing on security. We go and, um, you know, offer protection from ransomware attacks and stuff. And I've literally had CIOs shake hands with me and say, Mohit, please protect us from the ransomware attack. We don't want to uh, be mired in that sort of trouble, right? We had a customer that was hit with a ransomware attack. We put them back on their feet and they literally told us, this was a healthcare customer. They told us, you guys saved us from going bankrupt and you guys save patient life. That's how important it is, right? Uh, and so we really kind of doubling down on security. Yeah, it is true. I can't remember if it was one of you or an earlier panel, like even though things slowed down a little bit when the economy slowed down, the bad guys that are hacking in did not slow down. I think it was Eli. <laughs> yes, Eli. So um, that's, that's great, super, super important. Um, so, Shifting gears just a, a tiny bit again, uh, we have talked uh, about throughout the whole day, not just on this panel, but if you've been here the whole day, you've heard us talk about generative AI. And so we're always curious what you're hearing from your customers about Gen AI. So if you could share that with us and what you're doing around that, it'd be tremendous. And um, Eli and Mohit, we'll mix it up a little bit. Well, uh, I'd say the the most common thing I hear from our customers is excitement. You know, when you look at these solutions, they, they almost feel a bit like magic when you see them for the first time. But, you know, once the initial excitement uh, wears off, I think there's also healthy skepticism. And so, you know, folks want to see you prove it. And, you know, as we rolled out our beta program for Purple AI, our generative AI layer for to help folks with threat investigations and threat hunting, um, 
the way that we converted our initial beta customers is that we structured the beta program with weekly data collection to show them exactly how much time they're saving by using this generative AI layer versus their traditional approaches for hunting and investigation. And we had multiple customers pre-purchase six-figure contracts, you know, based on just the beta, you know, well before the GA was even ready because we were able to prove the value uh, with metrics. So um, yeah, I think healthy skepticism around Gen, Gen AI is good, uh, but it's, it's also such an exciting time. It, it really feels like we're on the cusp of something really big, you know, with uh, a lot of solutions starting to show these almost sparks of artificial general intelligence. I actually can't wait until however many number of years in the future, I don't know if it's two or five, and then we look back on this time right now. It's gonna be super interesting because we're gonna be so much further ahead. And then we'll look back, we'll go, hey, remember when it first started? So it is, it's very exciting. Yeah, so we see a mixture of emotions. We see excitement, like Eli said, we see confusion and we see fear. Yes. <laughs> so excitement for all the, all the reasons that have uh, already been spoken about. I mean, uh, there's a lot of potential, right? This is almost like magic, like Eli said. Right, uh, what more can this do for my company? What more can this do for my business? How can I extract more value from the data that I have, which is my crown jewels, right? That's all the excitement. On the confusion front, um, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, how can I use it responsibly, right? Is it gonna take away my job? A confusion and fear both. Uh, what is it going to find um, that was uh, kind of security through obscurity, right? Uh, will it turn up something? Will it fall in the wrong hands? Uh, how am I going to use it, right? Is it how much of an expense is going to be? Am I going to be left behind uh, competition if I don't use it? So those are some of the mixed emotions we see, right, on the confusion and fear front. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of excitement. So people want to use it but they want assurances that it can be used responsibly and it's not going to do them harm. That's kind of what we see. Yeah, good. I think, Ankit, you wanted to, did you want to say something on this topic as well? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, two things. Now, first is I think what we have been really excited about is, you know, Gen AI is as powerful as the APIs that power it. And I think we've seen like a huge amount of interest in terms of how companies think about APIs in the context of AI. Like one of the conversations that we end up having with, you know, some of the bigger companies is, is there, an, is there a possibility in which as more interactions that all of us have with systems become more conversational AI driven? The companies that do not have good APIs or well-documented or discoverable APIs, are they going to become increasingly invisible in this world? Just the way that, you know, it happened with search and crawling and how web pages came in. Uh, I think one thing I would always, you know, think about Gen AI is like, again, it's right now in its current form, it's definitely a tool. And a tool is only as powerful as the person who's wielding that tool or as, you know, and I think you can always ask it questions and it'll give you an answer. But are we thinking about whether the people asking the questions are able to ask the right questions and if they're able to also understand the answers uh, and if they are the right answers or hallucinated ones. And I think there's a little bit of a risk to assess how good we are with that. Yeah, that's true. Um, so the topic is building and sustaining uh, software companies. And so I'm interested in, for everybody here, as you look forward 12 months, if you could share with us a couple of you or all of you your strategy 
looking forward. So we heard your journey, how you got here, why you built, and now what you see. And I realize that might be a little bit of a crystal ball, um, but what is your strategy for the 12 months going forward? And we can start with Armand, we'll go to Mohit, but any of you, all of you, if you wanna chime in, that'd be fantastic. Sure, yeah, I mean, I think this will tie back into you know, the conversation we're having earlier, right? As we're sourcing customer behavior change, how do we better sort of fit into what they're looking for? I think one of the interesting you know, history of HashiCorp, right, we grew up as an open source company. We have you know, eight, nine different products that started out as open source. We do hundreds of millions of downloads a year. And we're sort of in transition to being more of a cloud-delivered business, right? I think where we started was developers wanted to download open source and you know, run it themselves and you know, kind of own it as mission-critical infrastructure software. I think as headcounts leaner and teams are trying to focus on what differentiates their business, they're increasingly sort of wondering, like, why do I want to even run this as a, you know, as a service myself if I could have HashiCorp do it for me? So I think that's a key part of our strategy is really making that transition to delivering this stuff as a cloud service as opposed to traditionally it's been self-managed uh, for a very long time. I think the other side of that is because we have eight, nine different products that were all built sort of independently and some of them through acquisition, a big focus for us is bringing that together through a common platform, right? I think the point you made is people are increasingly looking at, hey, I really want a common platform that integrates these workflows rather than have to have a bunch of point solutions and glue it together. So I think that's another big focus for us is to really bring the portfolio together. And the third one really ties back into security, right? I think we've continued to feel that that's a really robust set of budgets. Uh, people are under a lot of scrutiny and uh, I think there's a whole lot of debt to pay down. I think when we look at most people's traditional approach to security, so that's another big investment area and focus for us is really how do we sort of you know, build on the strength we have with tools like Vault and Boundary and, and sort of acquisitions and sort of secret scanning to build a more comprehensive uh, portfolio around security. Great, Eli? Sure, yeah, I would echo the, the platform concept in that you know, when you're a startup, your sole goal is to find one thing that you do better than anyone else and that customers can't live without. So with Sentinel-1, that was our initial, we called it our static AI model, which was a supervised machine learning model. It's now been trained on a half billion malware samples that did a really amazing, almost magical job at detecting unknown malware, you know, malware that didn't show up in any threat intelligence feeds. And that, that initial thing that we did, you know, ultimately got us our initial sets of customers and put us on a on a track to, to get where we are at today. Now, uh, you know, as a public company, 10 years old, the goal is to go beyond that, that one single thing and really be a complete platform to let you, the customer, fully defend your entire enterprise. Um, so across your cloud environment, your on-prem environment, your servers, your workstations, your users, your data, and defend all of it using a single solution that's unified with unified workflows and doesn't require you to piecemeal together a bunch of point solutions. And you know, customers like that because one, it's simpler, um, there's economies of scope, uh, but there's also economies of scale in that you know, it's typically cheaper to buy those combined solutions from a single vendor as opposed to piecemealing them together. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I know that everybody else probably feels the same way. I want to thank each one of you. Um, such it, It's so impressive what you've built in the industry uh, at your companies and for, for the industry and for customers. 
And thank you each for your time to join us here today. Really, really appreciate it. So thank you all. Thanks again for listening to the AWS for Software Companies podcast. For more conversations with global software leaders, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please feel free to share these episodes on LinkedIn or other social media. Thanks again for listening.